liftoff and the clock has started. This is 20 Minutes You'll Never Get Back. <laughs> My name is Doug Prezak, and welcome to 20 Minutes You'll Never Get Back. Let's give it up for Dan, a listener who sent in his introduction. That's Dan doing his impersonation of Fozzie Bear introducing the podcast. So thank you very much, Dan. Remember, if you want to be a announcer for the show, like you've aspired to be an announcer on a podcast, this is your opportunity. It's pretty easy. Just go to 20minspodcast.com. Uh, it'll tell you how to do it. Or I'm going to tell you the shorter version. Get your iPhone out. Go into recorder and record. This is 20 minutes. You'll never get back. And send me the file. It's just, it's just that easy. And lastly, if, if this is your first time tuning into uh, 20 minutes, you'll never get back. Yeah, I have a lot of one and dones. They, you know, they download one and they don't come back. <laughs> so either I've insulted great numbers of people around the world or uh, they think I'm crazy and they don't want to do it. So anyway, uh, if, if it's your first time, try a second one. They're free. Okay. All right. It's been a minute, 17 seconds. I need to get on with the show. So let's get going. All right. On the last episode, I talked about a lot of things are opening up. The, um, the vaccinations are taking effect. People are wearing their masks. The uh, casualty counts are going down. Um, new cases are going down and life is starting. Not all the way there. Not, not by a long shot, but life's starting to come back to, uh, to normal. And one of the things that's happened, at least here um, in, in the United States, is restaurants are beginning to open up with limited capacity. And I actually was in a restaurant for the first time yesterday. I actually sat inside. There are only one other couple in there besides uh, my wife and I. And I tell you, the weirdest thing in the world was walking out of a restaurant having just eaten in there. That was a very uh, surreal feeling walking out of a restaurant. But that got me thinking um, about restaurants and how were they even able to survive. Many, many, many restaurants just couldn't do it. uh, No customers for a year and, and had to cave in. And the ones I feel most sorry for are the mom and pop restaurants or, and and most of them are the diners. They're standalone things. Uh, They're not the big chain, you know, Applebee's, uh, Red Lobster places. These are the the mom and pop highway cafe places or the diners. So you know what I did? I did some research so you don't have to. Let's talk about diners. So let's start with just what is a diner. Well, a true diner is described as a prefabricated structure built at an assembly site and transported to a permanent location for installation to serve prepared food. Webster's Dictionary defines a diner as, quote, a restaurant in the shape of a railroad car. The word diner comes from dining car, and the diner designs reflected the styling that manufacturers borrowed from railroad dining cars. A diner is usually outfitted with a counter and stools and a food preparation or service area along the back wall. A lot of decommissioned railroad passenger cars and trolleys were often converted into diners by people who couldn't afford to purchase a new diner. The concept of the diner began with Rhode Island's Walter Scott. Now, Scott was a part-time pressman and a type compositor in Providence, Rhode Island. And around 1858, when Scott was 17 years old, he supplemented his income by selling sandwiches and coffee from a basket to the newspaper night workers and patrons of men's club rooms. Now, by 1872, his business became so lucrative that Scott quit his printing work 
and began to sell food at night from a repurposed horse-pulled wagon that he parked outside the Providence Journal newspaper office. Now, Scott's Diner can be considered to be the first diner with walk-up service because it had windows on each side of the wagon. Commercial production of these lunch wagons began in Worcester, Massachusetts in 1887 by Thomas Buckley. Buckley was successful and became known for his White House Cafe wagons. Buckley found that designing and manufacturing lunch cars was way more profitable than running one. He's known as the inventor of the diner and the owner of the Worcester Lunch Car Company. These early dining cars had large wheels, overhangs, murals, lettering, and frosted glass, while the interior contained uh, basic stoves and an icebox. In the 1900s, there were three companies that manufactured lunch cars, the Worcester Lunch Car Company, Tierney, and O'Mahony. <laughs> just, just in case you were wondering, you know, again, research. Charles Palmer. Remember that name. I'm, I'm just kidding. You don't need to remember that at all. Charles Palmer received the first patent for the diner in 1893, which he billed as a, quote, night lunch wagon. He built his fancy night cafes and night lunch wagons in the Worcester area until 1901. As the number of seats increased, wagons kind of gave way to the prefabricated buildings made by many of the same manufacturers that have been building the wagons. Like the lunch wagon, a stationary diner allowed the owner to set up a food service business real quickly using the pre-assembled walls and counters and equipment. In 1912, a restaurant entrepreneur named Michael Griffin bought the first lunch wagon built by Jerry and Daniel O'Mahony for $800. Griffin chose the transfer station neighborhood of Union City, New Jersey for his diner site and for its copious foot traffic. The wagon helped spark New Jersey's golden age of diner manufacturing, which in turn made the state the diner capital of the world. Lunch wagons became very popular because workers and pedestrians could purchase inexpensive meals during the day, but especially at night when most restaurants closed at 8 p.m. By this time, lunch wagon vendors became so abundant on the streets that many cities and towns passed ordinances to restrict their hours of operation. That's right, City Hall was coming down on the poor diners, and frankly, they got sick of it. So what they did, they figured out a way to circumvent the law by positioning their wagons on semi-permanent locations. Now, at the same time that the lunch wagons were becoming popular, obsolete horse-drawn streetcars were being replaced by electrified models. Many of the displaced cars were purchased and converted into food venues for a fraction of the cost of building a new dining car. In the decades that followed, nearly all major U.S. diner manufacturers started in New Jersey. The O'Mahony Diner Company of Elizabeth, New Jersey, produced 2,000 diners from 1917 to 1952. Only approximately 20 remained throughout the United States and abroad. Along came World War I, and when it broke out, diners shifted and began catering to women. Restaurateurs added flower boxes and wallpaper, and they began advertising their food as home-cooked meals. Many dining car owners included the word miss in their names to help feminize and soften their image because nothing softens your image like adding the word miss in front of it. Oy. During the Depression, many diners stayed in business due to their low-cost menus. 
The demand for diners increased after World War II when many servicemen and women returned home. There were over a dozen diner manufacturers by then. After World War II, diner manufacturers and owners started using new materials to spruce up the joint. Now, as we've talked about, the original style diner was kind of like a a mobile home. It was long and it was narrow. This kind of elongated design allowed roadway or railway transportation to the restaurant site. In the uh, traditional diner floor plan, a service counter dominates the interior with a preparation area against the back wall and floor-mounted stools for the customers to sit on. Now, larger models may have a row of booths against the front wall and at the ends. The decor varied over time. Diners in the 20s through the 40s featured art deco or streamlined elements to copy the appearance of rail dining cars. Diners of the 50s used things like formica countertops. Uh, Who doesn't love a good formica countertop? Porcelain tiles, leather boots, wood paneling, and terrazzo floors. The look of the diner changed as it spread to the suburbs, and they started using stainless steel exteriors, large windows, and some wall decor. As the economy returned after World War II and the suburbs boomed, diners were an attractive small business opportunity. During this period, diners spread beyond their original urban and small town market to highway strips in the suburbs, even reaching the Midwest. After the interstate highway system was implemented in the United States in 1960s, diners saw a boom in business as mobile travelers would stop for a meal. Speaking of stopping, this is a great place to take a break while I go grab a cup of joe. But when we come back, we're going to talk about diners in the 70s, the revival, and I will give you a list of terms to use in a diner so you won't look like an outsider. I'll be right back. Hey, here's how to make breakfast as exciting as a circus that a three-day rodeo rolled into one. Shredded Ralston Polio Breakfast, start the day off shining bright. Gives you lots of cowboy energy with a flavor that's just right. It's delicious and nutritious, bite-sized and ready to eat. Take a nip from home, go and pass your mouth. Shredded Ralston, ping, ping, ping. For better breakfast, it's Ralston. One, two, three. Shredded Ralston, the ready-to-eat bite-sized cereal, regular Ralston and instant Ralston, the delicious hot cereals. Look for these whole-grain cereals in the red and white checkerboard packages. For better breakfasts, it's Ralston. One, two, three. Oh, sadly, I remember Ralston cereal. Don't judge, okay? Don't judge. All right, let's get back to diners, and now we're moving into the 70s. In the 1970s, diners began to lose a share of their market to the new fast food establishments. The fast food newcomers satisfied America's desire for some affordable food that was geared to a population on the move and in a hurry. The few remaining diner manufacturers responded to this new threat by marketing their diner restaurants with neoclassical or Tudor or Mediterranean styles. They had artificial stonework and dark stained wood and earth tone colors, fabrics that replaced all the flashy look of stainless steel and neon. Many old diners were remodeled and covered with brick walls and mansard roofs. A revival began in the late 1970s and created a new interest in the American diner. 
the three remaining old diner builders began to fabricate new diners in the old styles. New companies joined the growing market to build new, retro-looking diners. The renewed interest in diners can be attributed to Americans oh, looking backwards you know, for inspiration and the values of yesterday in a time of moral and economic uncertainty. Now, several national, I emphasize the word national here, corporate franchises such as Denny's or Johnny Rockets, they adapted the look and the feel of the diner as part of their new marketing concepts. I'm not taking anything away from Denny's or Johnny Rockets. I mean, who doesn't love a good Grand Slam breakfast or a a moon over Miami? But let's go back to what Miriam Webster said. They defined a diner as, quote, a restaurant in the shape of a railroad car. You know, a prefabricated structure. The national chains can put the word diner in their titles, but for me, it's just not the same. Now, the interest in American diner continues today. A significant number of vintage diners have been rescued from demolition and relocated to new sites in the United States. Manufacturers of diner structures are experiencing new orders or they're getting remodeling projects to convert them into sort of a retro style. Now, some museums have assembled temporary exhibits on diners, or they've incorporated a historical diner for a permanent display, or even better yet, they've changed their food service area into resembling a diner. The Massachusetts Historical Commission has placed all vintage functioning diners on the National Register of Historic Places, Along with nominations from other states, the list of diners on the National Register is increasing annually. Diners have evolved into a community gathering place, if you will, where people from all walks of life kind of go and have a fairly inexpensive, good home-cooked meal in a small and comforting atmosphere. You know, during most elections, it's not hard at all to watch TV and see some politician that's gone into a diner and is bugging people (laughs) while they're trying to eat trying to elicit their votes. You know, they diners will stay open for 24 hours a day, and especially in cities. And at one time, diners were the most widespread 24-hour public establishment in the United States. Here's a recommendation from the American Diner Museum. Help preserve diners by keeping them in business. Whenever possible, visit a diner to share a meal and or conversation with others. All right, I mean, I have conversation with others, but... I love a good diner. Why do I love a good diner, you ask? Well, it's the eats. I love to eat. (laughs) Many diners serve casual food, you know, hamburgers, french fries, a club sandwich, and other kinds of simple fare. Most of the food is grilled, and that's because the early diners were based around the grill. Some diners serve breakfast foods throughout the business day, and others that focus on breakfast may close in the early afternoon. Coffee is a mainstay at the diners. (laughs) Trust me, just order a cup of joe, okay? Don't go all fancy Starbucks on them. Many diners serve hand-blended milkshakes. The best part is, you know, (laughs) they bring the glass to your table and all the leftovers in that big metal container so you can refill your cup. There's also the blue plate special. What's a blue plate special? Blue plate. (sighs) Say that quick five times. The blue plate special. Special is a term used in the United States and Canada by restaurants, especially in diners. It refers to low-cost price meal that usually changes daily. The term became common starting in the late 1920s. A May 27, 1926 advertisement in the New York Times for, quote, the famous Old Sea Grill Lobster and Chop House 
promised, quote, a la carte hours, moderate prices, and blue plate specials. The term was very common from the 1920s through the 1950s. As of today, there are still a few restaurants and diners out there that offer blue plate specials under that name, sometimes even served on a blue plate. Okay, I have you all jazzed up now to go find a diner, go in and grab some grub. But when you walk into a diner, all the regulars are sitting there and they all turn and look at you. Now you're an outsider. This is how you become an insider in a hurry. You start throwing some of these terms around when you order. They'll accept you and you're in like Flynn, okay? I'll give you the term. I'll wait a second or two so you can play along and try and guess what it means and see if you're right or you're wrong. Adam and Eve on a raft. Everybody really should know that one. That's right. It's two poached eggs on top of toast. How about Adam's ale? That means cup of water. Axle grease or cow paste? (laughs) Gross. That's butter. Uh, Baled hay? You've ordered some shredded wheat. Uh, if If you want your order with bad breath, it means you want onions on it. How about uh, Battle Creek in a bowl? That's that's right. It's a bowl of cornflakes. Belly warmer, or Joe as I say, that's coffee. Boiled leaves, that's tea. Go in and order a uh, Bow Wow. That's right. You're going to be getting a hot dog. If you want a bowl of bullets, it's beans. (laughs) Burn the British. That's a toasted English muffin. Cackleberries. Yep, eggs. Uh, you want a checkerboard? That's a waffle. A hockey puck? That's a well-done burger. A life preserver or a sinker? That's a donut. Here's a good one. I'll have a bowl of looseners. <laughs> That's a bowl of brute prunes uh you want some sand that means you want some sugar uh, you want some sweepings that's hash gross two dots and a dash that's two fried eggs and a strip of bacon and if you say you want your fried eggs wrecked that means you want them scrambled go in and order a uh, fried yard bird that means you would like some fried chicken And lastly, shingles with a shimmy and a shake. (laughs) I dare somebody to go into the diner and say, I like some shingles with a shimmy and a shake. If you do, hopefully you're going to get buttered toast with jam. All righty. What have we learned this episode? Well, we learned that New Jersey is the unmatched capital of the world for diners. We learned that if you want to soften something, just add the word miss to it. And we learned that diners are making a comeback. That will do it for this episode. I'm off to my local diner and get uh, some cackleberries and hockey puck and a side of shingles with a shimmy and a shake. Again, thanks for listening. And I'll talk to you next time on 20 Minutes. You'll never get back. Bye-bye. Hi, it's me again, Doug. I want to take up a couple more seconds of your time just to remind you, if you want to stay informed of when uh, the next podcast is posted, all you need to do is sign up at uh, on that Instagram machine. It's at uh, 20MYNGB. 
20MYNGB, and that means 20 minutes you'll never get back. Uh, If you sign up there, you'll uh, always see when the next podcast is uploaded. And if you want to leave some comments, by all means, please do go to the uh, website at 20minutespodcast.com. So that's 20minutespodcast.com. And uh, you can uh, leave your comments there. It also tells you how you can be an announcer for the show. So take, take a look at those two things if you'd like and stay informed. And I'll, as always, thank you very much for listening to uh, 20 Minutes You'll Never Get Back. Bye-bye.